You are listening to World of Noise on X-Ray FM and the X-Ray Podcast Network. I'm your host, Bob Ham. Each week, we put the spotlight on Portland's music community through interviews with the people making the noise in our city. We've got an action-packed show for you today, so let's not waste any more time. Next Thursday marks the start of Shavuot, the Jewish holiday that commemorates the anniversary of God giving the Torah to the nation of Israel. It seemed like the perfect time to speak with Alicia Jo Rabins. She's a musician, a poet, and a scholar of the Torah who has dedicated a lot of her time over the past five years creating Girls in Trouble. It's a study curriculum that explores the Torah from a feminist perspective by highlighting the stories of the women mentioned within. And she does so with a deeply researched work that includes artwork from around the globe, poetry, study questions, and songs that she wrote for each woman. Alicia Jo Ravens first came to my attention, as she did for most people, through her stunning musical theater piece, A Cottage for Bernie Madoff. It wrestles with the wrongdoings of the late financier and is now being turned into a film with the help of local filmmaker Alicia J. Rose. So there was plenty to talk about when I caught up with Alicia on the phone a few weeks ago. Alicia Joe Rabins, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Thanks for having me. How have you been holding up in the midst of this strange time we're living in? You know, um, I think I'm one of those people who is more of an introvert than I ever knew. <laughs> so obviously it's scary and I'm privileged that I'm not close to anyone who's actually sick. Um, and so... My, the way that my daily life has changed, I'm sort of like, oh, I never have to leave the house. Okay. So it's not necessarily easy. I'm like homeschooling my kids and everything, but um, I'm, I'm actually enjoying more aspects of this than, than I thought. Are you able to work on a lot of creative stuff right now? Yeah, I have usually like four or five hours in the afternoon where my husband's with our kids. And um, so that's kind of my chunk of time and then sometimes at night I'll go do another session so it's like I hit the ground running the second I (laughs) get a minute and I just kind of don't stop that part is a little intense but um, I'm fortunate that I have like a a partner in parenting so I can at least spend a few hours a day doing work that's great part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today was about the the online launch of Girls in Trouble which is your, your project um, you know, study guides to help sort of teach the Torah and talk about the, you know, the, the lives of women represented in the Torah. Uh, where did this project begin for you? Um, this project started about 12 years ago when I was doing a master's degree in Jewish women's and gender studies in New York. And I was, um, I've, for a long time, I've been a musician and a writer, and I've also taught like a feminist approach to Jewish studies and texts. And I've done all those three things kind of, I often combine them in kind of weird creative projects. Um, So I went to get this master's degree to just sort of, you know, formalize um, some of my education, take it to the next level so I could do more teaching at a higher level. Um, And while I was studying, I really fell in love with stories of women um, in the Torah. And I was specifically studying stories about women making music in the Torah and in also later rabbinic commentary 
And I was finding this, I was curious whether there would be like a positive attitude, a negative attitude, a neutral attitude. And I really found a whole range of, of attitudes towards it. And when it came time to write my, my thesis, I was sort of like resistant to just taking what I'd learned. And I think because I'm essentially an artist, I didn't want to turn it into an academic paper. And um, my advisor had come to see me play with bands um, because when I wasn't in school, I was always <laughs> outperforming. So he had come to see me perform and he was like, why don't you take your you know, research and turn it into songs? And if you write lyrics that really draw on the research you did and you do like a whole annotation, I bet I can convince the dean to, to give you credit for the thesis. So that's how this whole project Girls in Trouble started, which grew. So at first I had no idea I would ever leave the walls of like this seminary where I was studying. Um, but yeah, so it just started as a few songs about stories of women in the Torah that had some kind of music in the actual story. And then as time went on, I broadened it out to just be about any stories of women in the Torah. I've only really looked over the curriculum for one of the women you talk about in this project, uh, the curriculum for Miriam in the Desert. And I was really impressed. You go very deep with this. You pull apart the biblical text. You find artwork that corresponds as well, as well as uh, really going into the details of uh, the lyrics that you wrote for the song about Miriam, which was called uh, Snow Slash Scorpions and Spiders. Well, my mother named me Bitter Although as a child I was so kind Hiding myself in the trees to watch over my brother So there's a lot of it's it the music feels really dense at least the lyrically it feels really dense but it's also completely accessible and I imagine that was the goal with this whole thing yeah, I really appreciate hearing hearing that you responded to it. You know, it's funny because being a musician who's spent 20 years playing in rock clubs and um, also I used to busk a lot, play on the street a lot. And so I just, I love like being in front of people performing and I play, I've played fiddle music and kind of folk music for many years and also classical and more like kind of rock and roll. So I'm used to working in these, um, I've never been like a, an abstract challenge. Like I've never really been like a noise musician or like a contemporary far out, you know, avant-garde, like the music forms I'm drawn to are, are accessible or things you can kind of show up and just like have a good time listening to, or if it's a depressing folk song, have like a nice bummer time, you know? <laughs> um, but, but then as like, a, I do have this kind of scholarly like side of my life and, and brain. And so that part of me really loves to, go super deep into like sources and commentary and look at these like 3000 year old stories and then look at how they've been interpreted over the ages. So with this project, I'm definitely trying to take this feminist approach to these ancient texts and put it into songs that hopefully people could listen to and enjoy like without even having any idea that there's even a, a biblical story behind them. And then the curriculum, like the study guides that I wrote to accompany them, that's where if someone wants to really go deep, like you're saying, and be like, what is this story about? And what is she referring to? And how much of it is she making up? And how much of it is the original? That's why I wanted to create these study guides so that there's like an interface. If people are curious about like a feminist take on Jewish texts or stories of women in the Torah, they can sort of enter through the song and then go through this portal of, of the curriculum to, to read for themselves um, kind of with my guidance. Is there a history of a lot of scholars uh, looking at the Torah and looking at Jewish texts from a feminist perspective, or is this uh, fairly unusual? 
Well, it really depends how you define feminism. <laughs> like, as long, you know, as soon as feminism began, you know, it, whenever you like 60s, 70s, like kind of feminism per se, right? Um, immediately there were, you know, that kind of, it kind of went out and there were like Jewish feminists looking at the Jewish tradition and black feminists looking at black culture. And, you know, there's um, all kinds of people took feminism into their own traditions and, and, and explored through that. But even before that, you know, at the time when like a little earlier in the century, you know, women are like agitating for the right to vote, for example, there were um, women beginning to study to be uh, like progressive rabbis and, um, before that, there there were women starting to like girls were starting to have bat mitzvahs. Where originally it was only the boys having bar mitzvahs. So that's kind of more like modern, you know, egalitarian, which is I think what we think of with feminism. But then there is a streak in the commentary about um, just looking at the text and being critical. There's a very common like Jewish way of looking at Jewish text is to be critical of it. Actually, it's kind of like an expression of love to really delve into it. And so there's always been an angle on it that's looking for, certainly like looking for justice within the stories. And um, there's plenty of misogyny, you know, when you go, go back and go centuries back, but there's also definitely texts that are sort of um, kind of activist texts that are, that are um, saying, why isn't this woman being tra- treated fairly? And, and why even in the Torah itself, there's a whole passage where these sisters uh, say, well, we don't have a brother, so we should inherit our father's land because there's no man to inherit. Of course, that's very, that's a limited, <laughs> you know, limited gain. But even in that story, Moses and God are like, yeah, I guess you should. So suddenly there's this like precedent for women's inheritance in the ancient world. So I think it depends how you define feminism, but there's a, I think as long as, People have been alive. People have been thinking about this stuff, but it's much more explicit in recent decades, fortunately. When it comes to the music and lyrics for Girls in Trouble, was that uh, an element that came easily to you, or are you someone that worries over every line of a song? Hmm. You know, I think I, I wouldn't say worry. I think I enjoy tinkering. <laughs> so I definitely work on it until I get it exactly how I like it. But um, in my, as a writer, I'm I'm trained as a poet. That's like my primary training. And I have two books of poetry that have been published. And so when it comes to writing lyrics, I had not done that before these songs. I was I was, grew up playing classical violin. So my entrance into music was a sort of wordless training, you know. And then separately, I was studying poetry in college. Um, and until I started writing these songs in my very late 20s, I didn't ever combine them. So for me, there's definitely like a lot of tinkering and kind of messing with the key in the lock to to get it the way I want it. But I really enjoy that process. So I don't worry about it, but I I do it for a long time. Have you been hearing from anyone who has taken advantage of these these study guides and and this work that you've done and used it for their teaching? Yeah, so I've, 
I've been slowly releasing, um, as I've been creating this curriculum, it's taking me about five years because there are 24 units and they're really in-depth. Um, and I should say I had support from this um, amazing nonprofit called the Covenant Foundation that helped support me to create these. And so I've been releasing them kind of slowly over the years. So the official launch is now, but some of them have been out earlier. And I've, I have heard really wonderful feedback and it's been such a range. There have been people saying, I have this creative botanist of a student and she doesn't want to do things the normal way. And we have been using your units to look at stories of women in the Torah through art. And she's writing her own songs, things like that. There's a, um, somebody who teaches at a Christian seminary in Illinois who um, wrote me and said, I've been using your units um, in my university classes with incarcerated men. And actually the unit that, that you were talking about, the Miriam unit is it's about a moment in Miriam's life when she's kind of alone in the desert and um, this professor sent me some of the work that his students um, did, and they were comparing Miriam's experience to their experience of solitary confinement in prison and creating these beautiful poems and drawings um, connecting with, with her story. So it's ranged from ways that I would expect people might be using it, which is really gratifying, and also ways that I hadn't anticipated that just is incredibly gratifying to hear. Wow. That is amazing. Um Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you uh, now about this project is, as you say, this has all been coming out online uh, at girlsintroublemusic.com, is where folks can uh, hear some of this music and, and check out some of the study guides for this. Uh, but next Thursday, May 28th, is the beginning of the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, and I hope I said that correctly. You um, did. Perfect. Oh, excellent. Well, what can you tell the listeners about the importance of this holiday that's coming up? Yeah, Shavuot is, it's a little, um, it's not the most famous Jewish holiday, even though it's, <laughs> it was really important in the Torah. Um, and it's really important to people who, you know, who really observe every holiday. But in more kind of progressive Judaism, often it doesn't get quite as much focus. But I really love it because it celebrates the giving of the Torah. So it's supposed to be according to tradition. It's like the anniversary of the day that Moses ascended Mount Sinai and, and received the Torah and even though, you know, I kind of understand that metaphorically, it's, it's a celebration of receiving sort of this book that um, makes our people who we are, that, that kind of accompanies us through the ages and contains our, our traditions, which we pass on and also wrestle with. And one thing I love about Shavuot is that there's a tradition of staying up all night studying the Torah to celebrate it. And I always think of it as like a grown-up sleepover. So you'll have, you know, like a synagogue that's usually all closed and dark after midnight, you know, and, but it'll be, you know, in normal times when it's not um, social distancing, it'll be lit up and warm and there'll be coffee all night and, you know, cheesecake. There's a tradition of eating dairy and shibuot, and people will just be staying up late into the night, studying Torah, debating, and it's just this beautiful kind of special way to interact with the tradition. When my father came back from the war I knew he would want to see me first So I ran out to greet him But he fell to his knees in the dirt He told me Daughter, I have promised God to offer the first creature that I saw. 
You've been doing a really uh, amazing job, I think, of connecting with people using uh, technology, especially during this pandemic. And one of the things that you're doing in the midst of this is a weekly Kabbalah Shabbat online every Friday. And I hope I said that correctly as well. Um, what can you tell us about that and how folks can tune in? Yeah, so normally it's pronounced Kabbalah Shabbat, but that's great. Okay, um, I came close. Is, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect, yeah. So it's... Um, it's, some synagogues call it Tat Shabbat. So it's, a, it's, more, it's focused towards families with kids. And last week, we actually had some adults from France who were not Jewish who joined us, which is wonderful, too. There's usually like between 35 and 45 people there. Um, and it's Pacific time. It's 2.30 to 2.45. East Coast time, 5.30 to 5.45. And it's just some singing and Shabbat rituals um, that is hosted by a website called Kveller. And the, um, all the details of how to, you basically have to sign up on a sign-up form to get the Zoom link, and then everyone's welcome. Um, and it's just very sweet, short and sweet, kind of welcoming the Sabbath with the traditional songs and the blessing over the wine or grape juice and candlelighting and challah, and then a couple kids' songs. So it's definitely geared towards the, the younger set, but again, you don't have to have any uh, kids. And my it's on my uh, events page at aliciajo.com a-l-i-c-i-a-j-o.com there's a link there that you can follow to uh, sign up and join and one really sweet thing is that families have been joining so people who are you know a state or two away from their grandparents and can't see them right now um, various branches of the family will all dial in for this so I can see them in different corners of the screen and they're people I didn't know before but I'm getting to know them just because afterwards I give them a chance to say hi if they want so they say hi to each other, and they say hi to everyone else. Oh, that's wonderful. While I have you, I wanted to ask a little bit about the work that brought you a fair amount of attention, which is Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. Uh, the last I read, the theater piece was being developed as a film by uh, director Alicia Rose, another local here. Uh, what can you tell us about that and the status of that project? Yes. Well, we are, I think, you know, in the beginning I said I'm having a relatively very okay time of a of, uh, social distancing. And I think a lot of that is because I'm so lucky with this project to be in post-production. So we completed production here in Portland um, in the fall and then did a couple days in New York for some exteriors and came back. And now we're working with, um, there's an animator here in Portland, Portland named Zach Margolis, who's absolutely wonderful. And our producer, Lara Cuddy, um, and our sound person, Christiane Birch. And so we're, we're collaborating remotely but we all have our own studios basically in our houses that we're working on. So thankfully we are able to keep, keep going on track and sending files back and forth and having, you know, little critiques on zoom where we're <laughs> encouraging each other to do little revisions or celebrating, you know, new milestones. Um, and our goal is that it will be um, submitting to festivals late summer. If there are festivals, <laughs> whatever <it's, laughs> the world is looking like, and then releasing it streaming to the public next winter. And, we're really proud. It's a really Portland-born project that um, it takes place in New York, but really the DNA of it is, is deeply Portland, and we filmed here in Portland last summer. So keep an eye out for a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. Well, for anyone who doesn't uh, isn't familiar with Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, what, what can you tell folks about what that project is? Yeah, so that project, it began as a stage show, like you said. Um, I was living in New York, and I had a residency that was like a space grant where I got to use a free office space on Wall Street for a year. And it was sort of like an abandoned floor of an office building that wasn't being rented out. And so a nonprofit uh, arranged with them that artists were allowed to, to work in it for a year. 
And that happened to be the year of the financial collapse. So I kind of headed into this office space thinking, great, a free space. I don't care where it is. Financial district means nothing to me. And then over the course of the year, um, everything fell apart in global finance. And I realized, wow, I'm really right up in the center of this. So I got interested in what was happening. And then Bernie Madoff turned himself in because of the financial collapse. He was no longer able to keep this scam going that he had been running for 30 or 40 years. No one quite knows. And it was the biggest financial crime in history that we know of. Um, and I became a little bit obsessed with what it meant that this one guy could, um, it turned out he was just making up numbers the whole time. And Wall Street really kind of should have known because there was some impossible math in there. And even a whistleblower who tried to tell, you know, the government and they ignored him. So I was, I was really curious what it said about contemporary finance. And then on a personal level, as someone who makes art about Judaism, I, I, I wanted to understand what it meant that he was Jewish. And so he's sort of most broadly defined as from my people, but I didn't have any connection to him. And I wanted to know, wow, like, how do I process this information? And I thought about the ancient tradition of excommunication. And so I wanted to ask, should we excommunicate this person who did this horrible thing? Or is it really not about him? Is it about the system that allowed him to function? So if you do excommunicate someone, like in the ancient times, you would, you would say the Kaddish prayer, which is the mourner's prayer. And you would recite this mourner's prayer, which you normally only say for a dead person. So it's sort of like saying you're dead to me. So that's why I called the piece a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, because I'm thinking about, should we be reciting this prayer for the dead for this person who really did this, this horrible thing? And then the film version with Alicia Rose, she's an amazing local uh, director and musician, and we are kind of, the stage show is just me on stage, but she had this vision that we've been able to make together, which has been such a gift, uh, which has included, you know, it's, it's me really acting it out, out in the world, walking down the streets of New York, even filming some synchronized swimmers, the um, Rose City Raindrops, the local synchronized swim team are kind of doing this beautiful mandala while, while we're reciting a Kabbalistic text. So we've really kind of brought this stage show to life in this film. Well, I cannot wait for that to see the light of day. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, beyond that film and, uh, you know, your, your Shabbat that you're doing every Friday online, I mean, what else are you working on? What comes next? Is there something you could tell us about? Well, the main other thing I've been doing right now is writing poems. It's almost the opposite. Instead of this huge kind of these large scale somewhat epic kind of scale, um, you know, dreamy projects. I've been writing these very personal poems about living right now through this pandemic, getting through the day, trying to figure out what it means to be apart from people. Um, and I've been writing them in my bathtub late at night after I kind of make it through the day. Um, and I call them bathtub pandemic poems for that reason. So I've, that's the, the rest of my creative energy um, has been going to, to that, to these little personal snippets kind of processing this moment. And I've been posting them on my Instagram and, and there's a page for them on my website. 
as well, because it's been really fun to kind of share them with the world as they come out um, rather than waiting to publish them later. Cause I just want, I want to, I want to share my perspective on what's happening while it's still happening. And um, it, it just kind of helps me process it. Well, anyone that wants to read Alicia's poetry or track her creative work, aliciajo.com is the place to do that. That's, again, A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com. And for anyone wanting to learn more about Girls in Trouble, go to girlsintroublemusic.com. Alicia Joe Rabins, thank you again for being on World of Noise today. Thank you so much for having me. Last month saw the release of the first EP by Blue Canopy. It's the debut solo effort of Alex Schiff, a multi-instrumentalist and a recent transplant to Portland who cut his teeth living back east with the well-regarded indie band Modern Rivals. It is, as you can hear in the background, a perfect blend of modern production techniques and throwback pop informed by everyone from Tame Impala to Todd Rundgren. The EP also marks a kind of send-off for Schiff as he left the East Coast for the first time, and the four-song release also features the members of his former band, a group that got started while they were all in high school. And it feels touched at times by Schiff's day job, making music for films and commercials. I patched in with Alex Schiff from his home studio in North Portland to talk about this time of transition and making music on his own for the first time. Alex Schiff, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are, as you said, a fairly recent transplant here to Portland. What brought you out here? Um, so my wife and I knew we wanted to start a family, and this we have, we have some friends here. My wife's sister is here, and it's just amazing out here. Um, it's beautiful. It's definitely more affordable than New York, and... Um, I can work remotely from wherever, so it just kind of made sense. Um, we made a list of places that we potentially want to live, and this was just on the top of it. So, um, yeah, we've only been here for a few months and only a couple months that weren't under quarantine, but um, yeah, we love it. Well, speaking of your time in New York, um, speaking of your time in New York, you're perhaps best known for uh, your work with Modern Rivals, a band from Brooklyn uh, that got some nice notices from Pitchfork and Consequence of Sound. Uh, that project was made up basically of friends that you had known for a number of years. Is that right? Yeah, a couple of them. Uh, we go back all the way to high school, and then I went to college with one of them, and we started the band there. And so the rest of it was mostly college friends and other people we kind of picked up along the way. Um, so yeah, we were in that that group for a long, long time, which is kind of how this project started. Was um, after that band broke up. I had been writing for this band for, for so long and kind of as a secondary writer, I was writing songs, but it was, you know, my friend's vision it was kind of his band. So this project was just a great excuse to write some songs and, you know, without restrictions and just kind of make a record that I would want to hear, um, you know, with some different influences and without the same, you know, restrictors. What, uh, precipitated the end of modern rivals? Um, one of my friends had a baby, another was moving to Chicago. It was just kind of, 
a phase of our life was ending in general and we kind of just lost the excitement for it. We're all still really good friends and every single one of them is playing on my record at the, to some capacity, including one of them co-produced it with me. So it wasn't anything uh, personal. It was just, you know, it felt like we, it was time. That makes sense. And, and, and yeah, I did notice that, that you did have uh, the rest of your bandmates from the band on your new EP in one capacity or another. Was that important for you to sort of have that input as sort of, you know, uh, sort of a transition in some sort? Yeah, especially um, kind of symbolically, the song 656, which was you know, the first single we released, was I wrote kind of right after the band broke up or around the time it was breaking up. And it's kind of about me not uh, you know, trying to figure out my identity after the band and kind of freaking out. And, you know, this band kind of was my musical identity. And now what? I felt very empty. And so it was nice to have everybody in the band play on that song. It's kind of you know, a nice send off. Accordions bring back to me Golden opportunity Driving into hurricanes Crippling anxieties Protected by parentheses Balance on your fingertips And now it's not enough And then at the end of the song there's like a little clip of some banter from a practice um just us joking around kind of here in the background nice at the, at the same time was it a comfortable thing for you to put yourself completely at the helm of a project like this um no <laughs> i mean yes and no <laughs> i <laughs> i mean i i so i wrote a bunch of songs and was excited about it but then i just really couldn't get organized and, and do it um which is where my friend patrick who's in who his project at Beacon School, if you haven't heard it, you should definitely check it out. It's really, really good. Um, he was really encouraging and he heard the songs, kind of just early versions of the songs and um, offered to kind of sit down and arrange all the songs with me. And without him doing that, I don't think I would have ever even done it. It's just hard to do things for yourself. <laughs> um, and it's much easier when, when, when there's someone there, uh, you know, to kind of, go back and forth and to, to push you to do it. Um, I'm, I'm working on a new EP now and I'm taking more of the reins and uh, doing more of it myself now that I kind of found my voice for this project. But just to get to get going, it was tough for sure. You said that 656 was sort of coming at the end of your time in Modern Rivals. Is that the same for the other three tracks in this EP? Was this all material that you were, again, sort of a transition away from Modern Rivals? Or was this all fresh material? Or those songs, at least those three songs, was that fresh material that you did after that band ended? Right. Yeah, the other three songs um, were songs that I wrote um, at, at different times after the band, I, you know, as, as like I said, my day job is is writing music uh, for different sorts of media. So I really wanted to kind of step away from the computer and just kind of grabbed the acoustic guitar and sat on the couch and, and wrote some songs like that. Um, and that was an exercise, you know, kind of doing something totally different for me. Um, so those were kind of a reaction to after Mod Arrivals. I just really wanted to do something like fresh and, and different and exciting. And so... Um, I think it was a reaction to breaking up with the band and wanted to do something different, for sure. Take a look at the facts. Wait, fable and poison. 
over your bio, you have a background in composition. You've studied composition. You've studied jazz. You've studied all these different types of, of music. Mm-hmm. But what led you down the path to wanting to write and record pop music instead of going down a jazz route, say? Right. Um, I think it's just, especially with this record, it's just what I listen to. Um, it's always what I gravitate back towards. And so with this one, I just wanted to write something that, that I would like, like I was the audience and I try not, I really had no expectations of anybody ever hearing this or even necessarily finishing this project, but I just wanted to write something, you know, that I, that I think I would, I would like, um, and then just see what happens after that. So, you know, I grew up, my parents were always playing, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, pop and rock music, like Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Simon and Garfunkel, Beatles, uh, Grateful Dead, stuff like that. And you know, I listen to a ton of music, and I work on a ton of different types of music. But that's always kind of the one that I feel is the most like introspective for for myself. So I, I generally gravitate back towards that. And I've never really been able to work on projects like that. So again, it just was kind of fresh and exciting to be able to you know do whatever I wanted. And that was you know it turned out to be that. Well, if you didn't have any expectations for this actually getting out into the world, this Blue Canopy EP, um, how is that happening then? Did someone push you to get this released? Yeah, Patrick was definitely a big help and influence just to get this going. And um, I ended up signing to the same record label that he was on, so they kind of heard of me through him. So he was really, really helpful. And the record label has been incredible. I'm not a super organized guy. So a lot of the stuff that goes along with releasing a record is stuff that completely overwhelms me, like distribution and PR and um, you know art and all that other stuff. So they were able to really step in and fill in the gaps for stuff that wasn't just making a record. As you said before, you have you know uh, your day job, for lack of a better term, is producing music for commercials and films and video games and stuff like that. Um, what is your mindset as you go into approaching these different kind of projects? Um, with those, it's really just, the, you know, the client, it's not about me at all. The, the, the client has a vision of what they want the music to be and they want someone that can make that happen. So I'm kind of just trying to make them happy and give them what they want. So it's, it's totally different than doing something for yourself, which I think is another reason why this project was really, really important for me to do. Are there any projects that you've worked on that you're particularly proud of? Um, yeah, there's some films I've worked on. Um, I did an animated short called Coin Operated with my friend Emil Moseri, um, which was, it's, there's no dialogue, so the music kind of carries, um, you know, the narrative. And that was really, really fun and rewarding. Um, and some other shorts that I've worked on and stuff like that. Um, with commercials, you know, I'm not passionate about advertising or anything like that, but sometimes there's a style of music that I didn't know that I could do that I kind of have to, step in and, and and do and that and that's always pretty rewarding too as you've worked on uh you know films and commercial work and stuff like that have you do you see or hear ways that that uh has bled into the work of other projects like modern rivals or blue canopy do you see one influence in the other in some fashion i think it has to because you know i'm doing it all the time but i really you know these these other projects the the personal projects i really try not to um so for instance like the music i make for blue canopy is something i would never really be asked to do for work um but yeah it, it's it, 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 there must be influence there because you know I'm, I'm pulling from the same bag of tricks i guess but 
in general, I try to do something new and different when I do these sorts of projects than from what I'm working on for like a commercial or a film or something like that. Now, you said you were trying to get a band together for a live version of Blue Canopy. Uh, so these are all local folks, I imagine. Are there anybody that we might have heard of or know? Um, I'm not sure. I'm still I'm, I was in the beginning stages of that. I also had so I had a band put together in New York, too, just in case I wanted to. I was thinking maybe it'd be cool, since they all know the songs already, to fly back and do a release show over there, which obviously is not going to happen. Um People around here, I've just been getting suggestions from my friends that know people out here, and I'm still still meeting some people. Um, but it's really just pretty much at the point where I meet someone, and they're like, oh, I play guitar, and then I still haven't heard them play, and they're just kind of on a list of people that are you know, potentially I can play with. So your first EP as Blue Canopy was, again, just released via the Fat Possum Records Offshoot Grind Select. Uh, it sounds like you've got new material in the works. Uh, what can you tell us about the sound of that m- material? Is it sort of of a piece with this first EP, or is it uh, evolving in some way? Yeah, I think the first the first EP was really just trying to find a voice in what this project is. And now that I have that, um, I'm just exploring you know, where it can go. It definitely still sounds like the same band, but um, and also with this baby coming in a few months, <laughs> I'm really trying to get this finished as you know that, that, that's a good deadline. Um, so hopefully there'll be a few new songs soon. Um, but yeah, I I think that I am trying to explore some new sounds and some new ways of going about it, but it definitely will sound like the same band. I do want to ask about the title of this new EP, Mild Anxiety, um, what your thought was about, uh, yeah, picking that as the the title of your first solo foray. Um, I grew up, I think anxiety runs in my family, and I grew up, you know, with some family members that are way more anxious than I am, so I kind of grew up not thinking I was an anxious person, um, and then as I got older and... I started having some sleep issues. I realized that I actually am a fairly anxious person and started getting help for it. And I was doing a, uh, this anxiety management course sort of thing. And I, and they, they have you kind of jot down where you are on a scale from one to 10 on the anxiety scale. And almost at all times I was at like somewhere between a one and a three out of 10. So I was kind of living in a state of mild anxiety. Um, <laughs> and all the songs kind of have a little bit of, you know, anxious neuroticism in the just in the vibe so i I thought it was kind of kind of worked and now i guess we're all living in a state of at least mild anxiety all the time so coincidentally it kind of worked out for the times we're living in i was gonna say it couldn't be a better time to release an ep called mild anxiety (laughs) yeah for sure yeah that, that worked out so how can our listeners both keep track of your musical input and maybe help support you more directly during this time Sure. Um, I have an Instagram that you can follow along with. Um, you can buy the music on Bandcamp. Um, just listen to it. Put it on your playlist and, and listen to it. Uh, if you really love it, definitely DM me and reach out. And make, it helps my uh, self-esteem a lot. Um, and just support all local music, honestly. Um, if you like a band, buy their T-shirt, buy their album, do whatever you can because a lot of people are struggling. I'm lucky that I don't rely on this, this project as my source of income, but a lot of people do. And a lot of people who have these big tours planned aren't doing it. So, um, you know, try to support them as much as you can Just support the industry in general, I would say. 
Again, Alex Schiff's debut EP as Blue Canopy, Mild Anxiety, is out now on Grind Select Records. Uh, if you want to give it a listen, bluecanopy.bandcamp.com. Follow him on Instagram at instagram.com slash blue.canopy and on Facebook at Blue Canopy Music. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been lovely. Thank you. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Multi-instrumentalist and producer Todd Goldstein has a story that's almost parallel to that of my previous guest, Alex Schiff. He came of age in New York, playing in the beloved indie band Harlem Shakes, before setting out on his own as a solo artist with the project Arms. But where his story diverges is when he decided to make the transition into making ambient music, inspired in no small part by his love of the work of Brian Eno. He's such a fan, by the way, that he named his cat Brian Eno. That move resulted in a pair of fantastic albums, including 2018's Closed Loop and the new album out this Friday called Memory Foam. As you'll hear in a moment, Goldstein's latest album was inspired by his move to Portland. Quite literally, ideas and melodies came to him during his cross-country drive. And what came out of those sparks of inspiration are lush compositions that feel like long stretches of open road and forward movement, or at times hypnotic and woozy. Todd Goldstein was kind enough to speak with World of Noise recently from his new home in Portland about memory foam and about moving away from both his former life in New York and the indie rock that he once made so well. Todd Goldstein, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Uh, thank you, Robert. Great to be here. You are a recent transplant here to Portland. I think you said that uh, it was in the last year that you moved here. Uh, what brought you to our fair city? Um, my fiance got a job out here, um, and we saw that as an opportunity to finally leave New York. I'd been there for about 15 years, um, really like, you know, came of age there and, you know, personally and musically. Um, and we were so ready to go and ready to get that change of scenery that, uh, Portland provided. And yeah, it's been, it's been a really lovely transition. I, I think it's been, it's been transformative in all, all kinds of ways. And where were you before New York? Um, I'm from Boston originally, um, and uh, went to college in Providence, Rhode Island, and then to New York after that. So it's it's been you know East Coast uh, the entire time, and you know, and uh, so that's a that is yet another thing that is kind of funny about uh, being out here now is how it's just such a different um, different kind of geography from what I'm used to and culturally and so forth. Of course. Now, the press notes for your new album, Memory Foam, say that the record was conceived during your move from New York to Portland, uh, like along the way is what I'm gathering. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a good question. Um, I guess, I mean, you know, as a, as a um, creative music person, I'm, I'm sort of uh, making things all the time. I'm just like 
spitting out terrible ideas and keeping track of them somewhere. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and when I was writing pop songs, that was the same way. I sort of hate everything that I'm doing as I do it. And then, you know, I look back after a certain amount of time and I realize I don't totally hate, you know, the things I've been making. Uh, maybe I sort of like them. Maybe I'm a little inspired by them. And then they start to kind of form themselves into an album. So while we were, you know, in the process of, of moving and, and working our way out here, uh, it was just such a huge, it was a monumental shift in my, in my lifestyle, um, going from, uh, the mile a minute, um, kind of churn of, uh, living in New York to such, a so much of a slower and calmer space, um, out here in Portland. And I, I, I felt it in my brain and my body immediately. And I, I realized kind of what I'd hoped, you know, I was sort of hoping I'll get out here and be able to finally focus on music again after, um, you know, many years of just zipping around. Um, and that's what happened. You know, I, I, I settled in, I kind of like took stock of where I was at with all of these terrible ideas and discovered that there was actually a feeling in there that I, I wanted to tease out. Um, and so I started the process of compiling and editing and shifting things around and, you know, and designing these things, these little ideas to turn into actual songs. Now, this isn't your first foray into making uh, ambient and instrumental music. You have released a, a, an album under your own name before this. And before that, you were releasing music uh, as ARMS, writing and recording pop songs as ARMS, and before that, as a member of the group Harlem Shakes. I mean, what was the inspiration to start exploring these more ambient sounds? Um, I think it was just a shift in my, in my taste. And my kind of, uh, uh, I guess, like values as a as an artist, you know, I, I there was a time, a very long time of my life, you know, well uh, well up through my twenties and early thirties, where I where writing pop songs and expressing myself through pop songs just felt like the most vital way I could be, I could be expressing myself, and I was just obsessed with song structure and arrangement and lyrics and kind of crafting everything into just the right shape and, you know, and all of those things. I was, I was just completely immersed in that. Um, and then there was this point, you know, while this was all happening, I kind of, my, my interests were shifting underneath that. And I started getting into you know, all kinds of uh, dark and crushing heavy metal, doom metal and things like that. And soft new age textural music, from all from different eras. And, and I realized that the stuff that I was making wasn't really lining up with my taste anymore. Um, and, and as that happened, I just, I felt like I'd said all I needed to say with songwriting. I, I, it was a funny feeling and I, and a kind of odd and hard to take kind of come to terms with, um, but realizing that I just actually had nothing more, to say in the realm of songwriting 
um, and then repurposing all of these musical skills to make this kind of music that I had no idea how to make. I just knew that I was in love with it and I was really moved by it. Um, so letting go of structure, you know, as I'd understood it and lyrics as a way of expression and having things really just live in the realm of repetition and texture and mood and space sound design and things like that. And I, yeah, I spent a good couple of years just banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out how to, how to do this stuff that, that I was so into. And um, yeah, and then I made that first record, um, the first ambient record called closed loop um, because I was just like, you know what, if I'm, if I'm going to do this, I need to uh, hole up in a cabin in the woods and just, you know, push out a bunch of, of stuff that, you know, the response, you know, forget everything I knew, start from nothing. Um, and so that, that's what I did. I, I actually uh, rented a little cabin in the, in the Redwood Forest um, and wrote most of what became um, Closed Loop. Um, and that kind of kick-started this new mode for me that I've, that I've been in since. When it comes to constructing these songs and thinking of it from like the first spark of inspiration to something that you feel is finished, uh, is that a long process? And how long does that take? Yeah, it's it is a very long process, and in a lot of ways, it feels longer and more kind of um, windy and confusing than um, songwriting ever did. Um, I, the, I guess I've kind of come to think of it that when I'm making this music, I I'm uh, I'm going to be, it's going to feel at all times like I'm, I'm going against my instincts constantly. You know, uh, I'm sort of doing the like George Costanza thing of what would I think, try to think of what I would do, uh, and then do the exact opposite. <laughs> um, like I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a songwriter at heart and I, and I can't get away from that. So I have all these instincts to kind of like nail it down, you know, make it, make it regimented, you know, break it into parts, break it into sections, you know, and, and there's plenty of that stuff, but most of the, my experience of making this thing is me saying like, don't do that. You're going to want to do, don't do that. You know, and I'm like very carefully just like letting things be. Um, and I, and I think because of that, it ends up being a much subtler and harder to pin down experience for me of making these things where I tend to feel like it's not working most of the time until suddenly it starts, starts feeling like it, it works after, I don't know, you know, a couple of months of sitting with something, um, which is why I need to have lots of things going at the same time. I'm working on, you know, 20 different tracks at the same time that I all, that all feel varying degrees of wrong um, until they start feeling a little right. What about the, the learning curve as far as instrumentation and the technology that you use for this, this new ambient sound? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I used to be very much like a studio studio guy. You know, I loved rec being in recording studios, working with my band or with other bands. You know, it was just, it was a home for me. And, and now 
what I'm doing is extremely solitary and uses Ableton Live um, instead of uh, Pro Tools, is what I used to use. Um, and I, you know, yeah, it's. It, it, I think these learning these kinds of things are kind of in my in my blood at this point. So I just sit down and I just start hammering these things out until it starts making some sense. Um, but actually, just recently, I realized I need to stop winging it. <laughs> I start <laughs> breaking open a, a couple of manuals and. I don't know. I'm taking a little class right now and just how to, how to use this stuff better. I, I've been, I feel like I've been making up the process of recording since I was you know, a teenager, you know, uh, finally ready to finally ready to know what I'm doing at least a little bit. Now your voice is still a part of the mix on memory foam. which is the song. Holy moly. I'm thinking of, which is a, a, like a little sample of your voice voice in there. Uh, 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 uh. Um, now you talked about this a little bit, but was that a comfortable thing for you to sort of leave singing entirely behind for this project and not have that part of this? Yeah, it's, those, are, those are really good questions. I, um, I, uh, it was sort of, uh, it was, it was a very conscious thing. And, but at the same time, it was something that felt very natural. Same with leaving guitar behind largely, um, or at least kind of like letting guitar take a backseat. These, I've been expressing myself through singing and guitar for, you know, the entirety of my musical life. Um, but there was, I had such a, a, a clear feeling when I moved into this music, I was like, I just don't feel like, being a singer anymore singing doesn't feel like who i am or the version of myself that i I want to be sharing um and and so i think in the earliest stages of what i was working on i was i was leaving all of that stuff out i wanted to try to make the production and the creation of these worlds be my voice um but now as now i'm a couple years into making this and i'm letting the process open up a bit and and it's it's been a pleasure to find odd new ways to kind of sneak my voice into it um it's not necessarily lyrics and the same goes for guitar i i the music that i've been making since i finished making memory foam is already a little more guitar centric just not in the way that arms you know or harlem shakes used to be um where i was you know a guitarist very much a guitar player I wanted to jump back a moment to ask about your time in Harlem Shakes and just to ask that when you look back on that time, is there something that, that, that jumps out at you, something that you look back on most fondly about that time? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were, uh, the, my old band Harlem Shakes was, was, a um, one of the buzzier bands in New York at a, at a certain point. Um, and we sold out a bunch of, big venues down there and we we made a bunch of tours around the country with you know up, up and coming acts who are now very famous um uh like passion pit and vampire weekend and things like that that was our sort of our class of um of new york indie rock uh and uh and then we we broke up before we ever really had a chance to hit it big because we were 
young and uh, were just jerks <laughs> and just couldn't get along and didn't, didn't really want to do it. You know, uh, uh, I really wanted to be, you know, be doing it, which was why I continued to do it for the next couple of decades. But um, the, the thing about it was the thing that I remember about it was doing exactly what I wanted to do at the time, which was be a rock musician professionally and to get on stage in front of lots of people and to play the music that I cared about. I, I don't think I've ever felt such a clear, like deep sense of doing exactly what I wanted to be doing at that time in my life and how um, even all of the anxiety around just being a band and touring and the disgusting, unpleasant qualities of <laughs> touring and the difficult personal issues of all of us working together, you know, even in the middle, amid all of that, there was something absolutely magic and, and about getting to be on a stage in front of a thousand people who are singing the words to your song. It's just, it's, stupidly beautiful and I'm forever grateful for it. And I feel like I dodged a bullet, frankly, by <laughs> getting out of that uh, when we did. Well, for anyone that wants to hear more of your music or learn more about what you're up to, uh, where can folks go online to track your movement? Um, well, uh, this record that uh, I made called Memory Foam uh, will be out on uh, House of Feelings, uh, which is a sweet little label in New York run by my friend Matty Fisano, um, uh, who used to be in arms back in the day. Um, and they can go to the House of Feelings, uh, House of Feelings, uh, social media, where everything will be going through there. Um, and my own website is todd-goldstein.com. I house all of my creative pursuits there, all of my design work, all my music and things like that. And um, I'll, I'll have some help, some stuff up there soon enough as well. Excellent. Well, again, that album is called Memory Foam that Todd Goldstein is releasing under the name TG uh, through House of Feelings coming out on May 22nd. Todd, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks so much, Robert. These were great questions. It was, it was really a pleasure to, to be on here. That's all for this week's edition of World of Noise. I hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to tune in next week when I'll be joined by Lisa Schoenberg to talk about the latest edition of the DIY Guide to Drums, her instruction book for budding percussionists, and the members of the pop group Boat will be on hand to talk about their latest album, Tread Lightly. All that next time on World of Noise. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.